So I want to go back, I want to start in this moment by going back to last Sunday. We had a wonderful, powerful message from Heather Vickery from the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee talking about and inviting us into, in fact, I'm going to say really encouraging us as a congregation to be part of the effort of assisting our trans and non-binary siblings from across the country in places where they are less safe and unsafe to hopefully, maybe, find a safer place and that Peoria is one of those safer places and more affordable in the safer places as well. An important point in our time, right? It is a powerful opportunity of active ministry to be able to assist families of all and individuals of all kinds of configurations who might be needing a safer place than where they are. And I think that business of this is going to be ever more important uh, this particular year because you have so many legislatures looking at enacting, uh, enacting laws and uh, practices that are reducing and eliminating access to health care for trans and non-binary folks that are putting in danger the ability for parents to take care of their children, um, to get the health care they need, to be persecuted for getting that health care, and much more. So this is a, a, an incredibly important opportunity that has kind of come into our laps just because of where we are in this moment and in this time. And I will say, uh, the congregation's response was fantastic. You were enthusiastic and right up there. And if you weren't here last Sunday, go back and listen to the service. Um, and it was inspiring just to simply be in the conversation, the conversation that happened after the service. The clearly showed the capacity for ideas and collective knowledge that showed up in the congregation in one Sunday alone. And later that evening, that afternoon, we were at, uh, a number of us were over at Imago Day Church having dinner with our community partners to kind of widen the circle of this um, and have that dinner just before PFLAG had their regular meeting and the youth program that's there uh, for inclusion for youth was also happening. And the next steps uh, include, so we had this great moment, and then it's like, okay, now what? Now what do we do? So the next steps include securing more housing options for people who think that Peoria is where they want to go. Uh, we are working, you know, our national partners in this are working to screen and assist people uh, who are beginning to say, yes, I know a housing option. They're, they're screening and assisting people who want a different place to live. They have quite the wait list at this point. And with housing, the housing really makes it possible to actually work with people. And then come the people, real honest-to-goodness people. And also one of the next steps is forming a coordinating team in our larger community of partners to be assisting with this because this effort needs a network supporting in trans and non-binary people and possible families is not just the work of any one group or any one congregation. It is something we must do together collectively. 
And so more will follow on that. If you have questions or notes, if you have questions about the conversation last Sunday, if you have notes about the conversation last Sunday, and so we can capture those ideas, you can send them to me for now. We'll figure out more of a structure going forward. So I appreciate what Heather was talking about for her motivation for this. You know, she is a, a straight, white, cis uh, woman who is in this you know, as part of her work, of course, but there is a personal motivation that must come with this kind of effort. And she was talking about how much this is about self-interest as much as any other uh, motivation regarding social justice and being the right, doing the right thing of us being a good neighbor. Because I am reminded in that and her reminder of like, this is really about our own personal interests as much as anything, our own personal invest, investments in this work. I'm reminded of the uh, wisdom that was shared by Lilla Watson, an indigenous Australian activist and artist who shared, who was known for sharing the wisdom uh, that was articulated by Aboriginal rights groups in the 1970s. And what she's known for saying is this, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. I mean, that's the motivation. Because your liberation is bound with mine. So don't come looking to be helpful or to offer charity. Come because we are inextricably tied together. And as Heather summarized last week, we are actively in this moment, actively working against the forces of fascism. Call that what it is, the work of preserving human dignity and agency that is at the core of our collective effort in this time. So I want to spend this moment, this conversation, unpacking some of that work so that we can better be able to face it together. Because the further I go in, into thinking about the systemic nature of oppression and marginalization and, and entertaining the possibility of actually being helpful to our neighbors, the more I realize how diverse we are, the more the range of human expression is fantastic and a little frightening, and how layered the work is, how much we are navigating in these conversations, as intersectional as it is in our language now. Specifically, I want to turn uh, in part to what Heather Vickery pointed out in the last, in a couple of ways last Sunday, which that the people who need the services of this relocation effort, this real kind of high, high concern for security and anonymity and safety kind of effort, are folks with multiple needs and limited resources. The folks who have had the resources and have the options have already or are finding ways to move to safer places or to make bubbles of safety wherever they are if they can't move. 
the folks who are on the wait list for this relocation, for leaving dangerous or dehumanizing places, are likely some of the most marginalized with limited money and connections. The layers of challenge are about race and disability and income and education and job history, along with health and sexual orientation and gender identity. And I mean, it's just a plain fact that moving from one state to another is expensive. There's the cost of moving, having a working vehicle, having thousands of dollars needed for finding an apartment, searching for a job, turning on utilities, and this is assuming that one has good credit. And the challenge is compounded by living in a state, if you're coming from a state that has uh, these, some of these laws in place, living in a state that cuts off access to health care would permit the state to take one's children, along with the social messages that deny and dehumanize you, your spouse, your child, or your child, plain and simple. The people who may come to Peoria in this effort are some of the most vulnerable in our society. And I say this not to elicit pity, but to encourage awareness. The people who we may never see in person will be in all shapes and sizes and backgrounds and racial and ethnic identities and disabilities. We are serving and connecting where people are, exactly where they are, to the best of our ability. And they will also be coming with trauma as well. They will be coming with woundedness that will not heal right, but needs lots of attention and care. Our most powerful work, plain and simple, is humanity, human dignity in all forms. And every one of us has a part in this, that we may connect people with a job, with a place to live, with groceries. We may help people complete forms needed for state benefits. But we also may not be asked to do anything specific for a long time. There's the raising of energy, and then there's the process, and the process is its own schedule. Because much of the support will be needed to secure to be secure and safe as possible, to minimize the number of people who know specific names or housing locations. A lot of the effort will be quiet and private. So our task, no matter what happens in this relocation effort, our task is primarily to keep growing in our understanding of the rights and privileges in our society and how that shows up and impacts us. It'll leave us better able to see the full humanity of our fellow neighbor and have it be a little bit less about our ego or projection or assumptions or thinking we're in this because we want to feel good about doing the right thing. I mean, it's nice, but it's really about the service, right? But part of what I also want to kind of bring into this moment in talking about the layers, uh, the, the diverse ways that people will be showing up, 
is to recognize we've spent a lot of the last year or so engaged with uh, positive and welcoming efforts for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, asexual, plus folks in our lives. And we've done really good work with that. We've been showing up so well. And, and if we're really tending to the range of marginalization, the, the nature of systemic oppression, we also need to make sure that we're spending time with anti-racism, multiculturalism, anti-oppression as well. Because so much of the water in which all of this is existing is still that impact of white supremacy culture. And we're still only just beginning to understand the cascading impact of relations, of how it has shown up in our society for centuries to say the white folks are the top and the best folks and everything coming down from there. It shows up in race as well as gender and sexual orientation and disability, access to power in all the forms, worth in society in general. This is what fascism wants to be promoting is the negative, to line people up by value, to undermine truth and diversity, and to say who is and isn't a real person in this world. Tommy Orange, in his book, There, There, offers a fictional tale uh, with, with made-up characters, but really deep observations about this legacy of oppression, of white, of people pulled away from their origins and their land who have become much more familiar with white European urban life than with their regalia and their ancestors. He talks about the impact of being divided as a person, as a people, and the feelings of guilt for not, maybe not wanting to be connected with one's native heritage, the legacy uh, and the repetition of addiction, uh, how that affects the lives and then how that passes on and results in birth defects, the loss of worth in society because of not being white enough. These are some of the, just some of the wounds that have changed everything, he says. And he points out, I think one of the pieces I so appreciate about Tommy Orange's, Orange's um, work, the, the visual that really struck me was in the story, part of the narrative is you have people who are intertwined with um, uh, drug use and drug uh, uh, sales and getting caught up in that and having to be pressured to uh, have weapons and guns and uh, robbing uh, for the sake of paying off a drug dealer. And it's laid out right from the beginning of the novel what's going to happen to the people at the end. But it's not, it's, as, as Tommy Orange says, the bullets that are shot at the end have been coming for centuries. 
the guns and the bullets that are at the end of the story have already been coming down the line for centuries. Part of our task is to really keep getting to know what's going on. To not, for those of us who have the option whether or not to pay attention to history, we need to say we, that history is not optional, that we must know, that we must understand, that we must develop relationships and more. I so appreciate that core message from Brian Stevenson, the civil rights lawyer known for his practices of achieving peace and justice. And the first one, always the first, going back to the first every time, is to get proximate, is to have relationship with those who are marginalized. He says, I think sometimes when you're trying to do justice work, when you're trying to make a difference, when you're trying to change the world, the thing to do is to get close enough to people who are falling down, get close enough to people who are suffering, close enough to people who are in pain, who have been discarded and disfavored, to get close enough to wrap arms around them and affirm their humanity and their dignity. One of the ways we're doing that, all the work is intertwined, right? One of the ways we're doing that in this community right now is having the local conversation rising out of concern for the high level of gun violence in Peoria. And that conversation includes an emerging interfaith religious leaders group. And the first conversations in this, which started back in the fall, were happening between mostly white leaders with, well, you know, yet, a, yet another set of good intentions, listening to each other and to leaders who are people of color share about the history and legacy of oppression in Peoria and its impact now. And the conversation was and is as impossible and awkward as one might expect. Just because you have religious leaders in the room doesn't mean we know what we're doing. Let's just start there. Just acknowledge that, right? And that's further layered with the recognition that white folks have been moved to this good intended effort again and again and again and again, and we don't seem to be like, feel like we're doing anything improving. Because I so appreciate the story that sometimes the work can feel pointless, without use, without possibility and hope, and that people will drift away from one effort and then turn to another that might have a different result. And don't stay with it. And folks of all races and backgrounds understandably feel discouraged, wondering whether any of this effort, any of sharing their story is simply a waste of time. 
And the faltering of any one particular effort leads to reluctance in participating in the next, especially for the folks who are black, indigenous, people of color, who feel like the white folks are just asking for yet another story and yet another answer, but don't see them as fully human. Don't respect their lives and their time. Getting proximate is a long game. Staying. It is. It is staying when nothing is happening. It is showing up. It is being inviting. It is being gracious, letting others set the tone and, pay, and pace. It's also doing our own work in the first place. You know, I read the section from Tommy Orange because that's part of my work is to read that kind of narrative and share it with this congregation and not simply ask one of our members who is black, indigenous, or a person of color to be that voice, because it's, it's our work for those who are of, of the whiteness. It is to keep asking ourselves, are we talking with people or about them? Which one are we doing, with or about? It is learning, exploring the legacies as such named by Tommy Orange and recognizing the impact of a bullet that was fired, in fact, 200 years ago, and the shock waves are feeling and coming at us right now. You know, Tommy Orange's note about who can choose to pay attention to history, it rings so true. On any given day, I don't have to spend time on these questions. My children go to school, they come home, they're fed. I can drive, get groceries, pay bills, go to the dentist. I don't have to spend time on wondering about worth and dignity. How about you? What do you get to choose to focus on? Our shared work includes knowing what each of us has to attend to. It might be pain and access to health care. It might be race, it might be ability, it might be uh, neurodivergence, it might be work and debt, it might be religious trauma, loss of family, addiction, and any of all of these in combination. Our work, our core work is in the affirming of the diversity of us, affirming the value of truth, of story, of voice, and vote. Even as uncomfortable and nebulous and discouraging as it is, as heartbreaking and shocking our real stories and our real pain is. The Islamic Foundation is inviting the public to the mosque on February 25th for fellowship and an interfaith panel on Won't You Be My Neighbor? Yes, in fact, inspired by Mr. Rogers. And I'll just say right now that going to another faith community, someone else's house, if you will, and not a Protestant one either, I would say just expect it to be a bit awkward. It's okay. But it's also a chance to be present in someone else's experience. I hope you will join us. I want to close with a, 
a sign of our human capacity now. Because the work is, well, big. And given how divided socially, politically, and economically, and so much more our country is at the moment, the work can feel that much more daunting and impossible. But there was a moment last Sunday that I want to talk about right now from the Grammy Awards, which is our U.S. recognition of achievement in music. There is so much to lament in how divisive our society is at the moment, and that is real, and there was this. So last Sunday, one of the segments, one of the music pieces of music performed was with Luke Combs performing with Tracy Chapman. Luke Combs is a younger white male uh, country singer. Tracy Chapman is late 50s black lesbian folk artist. And they shared the global stage. Combs had fallen in love with Chapman's hit song, Fast Car, when his father played it for him as a kid. It was the first song he learned as a budding musician. It, he recorded a country version of this song, and it hit the top of the charts last year. And so Tracy Chapman, who wrote the piece, became the first black person to have this level of hit on the country music charts. Just pause here. First black person to have a high, such a high hit on the country music charts. Yes, we are still in the world of those firsts. And Chapman's song speaks of limited financial choices, of alcohol, addiction, and also wanting to belong, have a good life, be in a place with people to be loved. I remember when we're driving, driving in your car, speed so fast felt like I was drunk. City lights laid out before us and your arms felt nice wrapped round my shoulder. And I, I had a feeling that I belong. And I, I had a feeling I could be someone. Be someone, be someone. That song, that song, what I didn't know then when it came out in 1998, was how much that song was an anthem for a whole generation of lesbian women, as much as anything, who were finding, wanting to find a place and being free. This song was one that was so powerful and it was speaking to people in a whole new way in this moment. Luke Combs gave creative license to Chapman entirely. She brought in the people who performed on the original record. She, he, Luke Combs deferred to Tracy's vision and to returning to the folk style of her original work. And there they shared the stage, an older black lesbian and a white country boy. And the world stopped for the magic they created. And I, I had a feeling that I belong. And I, I had a feeling I could be someone, be someone, be someone.
we have this ability now, this spirit, this creativity, even when it seems impossible. Our capacity, our humanity, this is a far more powerful narrative than those who would erase and eliminate. Let us enter into our work to be vulnerable, humble, respectful, as well as truth-telling, witnessing, and encouraging. Because indeed, our liberation is bound and bound to one another. Amen.